Hi, hello, my name is Grace and welcome back to U.S. History Cracked, the podcast where we learn everything we need to know about American history. So welcome back and this is part five, episode one. Welcome to a entirely new part where we learn about what happens after the Civil War. And today specifically, we'll be talking about political paralysis in the Gilded Age. So after the Civil War, we'll be entering this period of time with a lot of corruption and a lot of improvements in capitalism as well as in industrialism. And we're going to be taking a look at the time period of 1865 to 1898 in America. So let's get right to it. First of all, let's talk about who is going to be going over and going to be presiding over all of these, all of this information. So the bloody shirt elects Grant. Republicans nominate Civil War General Ulysses S. Grant. I don't know if you remember him, but he was a great general who was really generous, I would say, in using his men and really didn't care as much. And he would just throw as much men as possible in order to get a victory. Anyway, he was a great soldier, but he had no political experience. Democrats, the Democrats' only agreeable point was that they were mad at the military reconstruction and that it was so organized. So the thing is, the Democrats, they, if you think about it, they've been split off and they're kind of disorganized and really not united. But the one thing that they did agree on was that they hated the military reconstruction. So that's probably the one thing that kind of unified most of them. In the end, Grant won by quote-unquote waving his bloody shirt. In other words, it means that he was reliving his war victories and he was using his experience as a soldier and a general in order to win the election. So he used his popularity to his advantage. Now let's talk about the era of good stealings. I don't know if you remember, but a few episodes back, or many episodes back, we talked about an era of good feelings. And that was post-war of 1812, I believe, and it was a time where people were all happy and the war was gone, everyone was back together, and it was a great time of growth. But here, instead of good feelings, we have good stealings. Despite the war, population still grew, and this was mainly due to immigration. But during this era, politics became very, very corrupt. Railroad promoters cheated gullible customers, and there was corruption in the government as well. So one example are two millionaires called Jim Fisk and Jay Gould. In 1869, the pair of these two millionaires, they created a plan to corner the gold market. And this plan would only work if the treasury stopped selling gold altogether. So in order to accomplish their plan, they decided to start working on President Grant and convincing him and persuading him and just kind of getting close to the president. But this didn't work because the Treasury sold gold anyway. So basically what they wanted to do was they wanted the Treasury to stop selling gold so that the prices would drop. William Boss Tweed and Tammany Hall was another great example of corruption. So this is actually one that is very, very, very famous. And if you have the time, uh, I suggest that you look up cartoons, political cartoons drawn by uh, Thomas Nast depicting Tammany Hall and Boss Tweed. So basically, although these names are familiar, you may not know exactly what they were about. So I'm here to explain that to you. Tammany Hall was an organization and they were also known as a political machine. And political machine is a term to uh, describe an organization that held a lot of influence 
and they use that to their advantage in terms of elections and having power and authority. So Tammany Hall was an organization in New York City, and Tammany Hall encouraged the public to vote for men, and then they, revo they rewarded them with you know, jobs and incentives. So in other words, it's basically like blackmailing or bribery. It's basically saying, if you vote for our men to be, you know, to rule over New York City, we'll give you a job, we'll give you money, we'll give you this, we'll give you whatever you want. So as you can see, it was really corrupt. And some of these men, even though they don't deserve these positions, they still got it because of all this bribery. Many mayors and governors in New York City were Tammany Hall people. Boss Tweed, specifically, specifically, he cheated New York City of $200 million. He was finally caught by the New York Times, and Thomas Nast constantly drew political cartoons about Tammany's corruption. So you can just see, like, this is only one big example of local-level corruption. And as we move on in this episode, in this podcast, you'll see that there's going to be federal-level corruption as well. Grant apparently failed to see all this corruption that was going on and even though his cabinet itself was super corrupt so if you take time to think about it Grant was pretty blind because even his own cabinet was full of corruption and he couldn't see it so like forget about you know local level corruption he's just gonna pretend he doesn't see it even more some more examples about corruption we're gonna talk about the credit mobiliary so the railroad construction company paid itself huge sums of money for small construction. Basically something called the Credit Mobilier, they basically paid themselves a bunch of money in order to build and construct small projects. So they just gave themselves a lot, a lot of money for very, very small things. So in other words, they were trying to make a lot of money, you know, kind of cheating their way to money. Another example is in 1875, where the public learned that the whiskey ring had robbed the treasury of millions of dollars. The problem here is that Grant's own secretary was involved in this scandal. The whiskey ring basically, as the name implies, sells whiskey. But however, they somehow managed to steal a lot of money from the federal treasury and although this may not sound all too, too bad, but the thing that made it worse is that Grant's, Grant's own men, his own secretary, was involved in the scandal. And you can see how his reputation would be damaged by this. Now, moving on, let's talk about the Liberal Republican Revolts of 1872. In 1872, people were disgusted at Grant's administration. Even if the public hasn't found out about the worst scandals yet, they've already started to hate Grant. Reformers created the Liberal Republican Party, and they nominated Horace Greeley. The Democratic Party also supported Horace, and they called for a union of the North and South, but called an end to Reconstruction. Basically, they're saying, you know what? I agree. We should have a union, but not in the form of this really like bad Reconstruction that you guys have in place with you know, your Northern troops literally stalking and guarding our Southern states. We don't want that. We want actual union. So the campaign was filled with a lot of mudslinging and insulting each other as every other political campaign at that time. Now let's talk about depression, deflation, and inflation. In 1873, a panic broke out. The Panic of 1873. This was caused by too many railroads and factories being formed than the existing markets could bear, plus the overloaning by banks to fund those projects. Once again, one, the causes are one, over speculation, and two, too easy credit. 
basically there's you know it's the gilded age there it's after the civil war they want to build many things they have these great ideas and they want to make money they're all greedy so they built all these railroads and factories but it's so much it costs so much money that it's more than the market can bear so then this starts to cause you know economic losses and it leads to a panic so as usual, there's over-speculation. So they believe that these railroads and factories are going to make a lot of money, but it actually doesn't bring back as much profit as they thought it would, and this causes them to have a panic. Before, greenbacks, which are another name for American bills, or paper money, they were being recalled. But now during the panic, cheap money, quote-unquote, supporters wanted the paper money to be printed again in mass. They wanted to do that because they wanted to create inflation. Just remember that paper money always causes inflation because it's so easy to just print out and make more of it. Supporters of quote unquote hard money, which is actual gold and silver and metals, they supported Grant to veto a bill that would print more paper money. So hard money does not cause inflation because it's not like you can just clone or make gold and silver out of thin air, right? So it's different from paper money and supporters of hard money are definitely against inflation. The Resumption Act of 1875 pledged the government to further withdraw greenbacks. Now let's talk about politics in the Gilded Age. The Gilded Age, I know we've always referred to this, but what exactly does it mean? It's basically a term that was created by Mark Twain where times did look great, but if you scratch a bit below the surface, there were many problems with corruption. So at first glance, you see America at that time, wow, they're so great, look at them improving all these railroads and factories, but then if you really just take a bit of time to scratch or dig a bit, even just a bit underneath the surface, you'll see all the problems, all the corruption, and how unjust it really was at that time. So that's what the Gilded Age referred to. Republicans trace their lineage to Puritanism. If you remember from you know, the beginning of US history where I talked about many, many branches of religion, Puritans basically were, were um, trying to reform the Roman Catholic Church. Democrats were more like the, um, were more like the Roman Catholics, exactly. They were more like the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics. So you can see how even religiously back then they were against each other. So now when it came to politics, they traced their lineages back to those religions and we can see why their values and all their beliefs are still against each other. <clears throat> Republicans had strong votes in the North and the West and also from Union veterans. The Democrats had strong support in the South as usual. Now let's talk about Hayes and Tilden's standoff of 1876. Grant almost ran a third term. So imagine this guy with no political experience almost running a third term. But then in the end, Republicans nominated Rutherford B. Hayes and Democrats ran Samuel Tilden. The election was really close and there were disputes in the election. So this one was a very interesting election. Now let's talk about the Compromise of 1877, a very, very significant compromise. The Electoral Count Act of 1877 set up an electoral commission that consisted of 15 men selected from the Senate, the Supreme Court, and the House to count the votes. In the North, Hayes became president as part of the Compromise of 1877. Basically, it was saying that if he agreed to remove troops from the two remaining southern uh, states, 
and also the bill to subsidize Texas and Pacific Rail ra- Rail Line. Basically, they were saying, you know what? We'll let Hayes be president if number one, you remove the troops from our southern states, and number two, if you subsidize the building of the Texas and Pacific Rail Line. In the South, military rule and reconstruction ended, and the military pulled out of the South. So you can see how Reconstruction ended politically. You can see how politics actually did bring an end to Reconstruction and they brought an end to it through this compromise and saying, you know what, we'll let the North be president only if they take away military. So you can see how bad they hated having Northern military in their states. With the military gone, the protection of blacks was gone with it. And there was a last attempt to protect them, and it was the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional. So once the Reconstruction ended, this actually creates a lot of problems with discrimination and civil rights, and we'll talk about this right now, about the Jim Crow laws. With the Reconstruction gone, the whites once again began to reassert their power. So there's no one to look after them, look after the blacks, and you know, kind of protect them and, you know, fend off for them. So the whites came back and you know, started towering over them and saying, "Ha ha ha! They're gone now. We can rule over you." So what they did, they placed literacy requirements for voters. They put voter registration laws, and they also put poll taxes. All of this was targeted at black voters, and it was also known as the Jim Crow laws. You can see how the whites are just finding other ways, other ways to suppress the blacks, even though it's not, you know, even though they're not doing it as slavery, but it's still a way to show that they're inferior, which is really, really negative. Now, my favorite part of today's episode, we're going to be talking about a very famous, significant, and horrible Uh, law case of 1896 called Plessy v. Ferguson. So me, as an admirer of law, I really love talking about legal cases and as confusing as they are, I think that every single law case has its importance and does set a precedent. So this one we're going to look into a bit more detail because it does play a big role in future segregation laws and future civil rights movements. So to start, The Plessy v. Ferguson case ruled that there were separate but equal facilities were constitutional. So separate but equal is a very, you know, famous principle at that time where they were saying, we're going to separate you guys, but you know what, you guys are still equal, which is actually kind of ironic. But this was how the Jim Crow segregation was legalized. Basically, so the context. Homer Plessy was a guy, he was seven-eighths white and one-eighths black, so he's basically part black and a very, very small part as well. But however, he violated Louisiana's Separate Car Act of 1890, which required equal but separate train car accommodations. So he decided to board a white car, however, he was part black, so apparently this violated the Car Act. Plessy's lawyers said that the state law which required segregation was denying Plessy's rights under the 13th and 14th Amendments of the U.S. Constitution. In the U.S. Constitution, like the Canadian Constitution, a lot of the amendments and, you know, a lot of the amendments and sections actually grant you rights. And if you are a citizen of either country, I suggest that you really look into your rights and know what you have a right to because some of the times we may be, our rights may be violated without our knowledge. 
So it's important that we acknowledge and we are aware of what rights we have. So here, Plessy's lawyers were saying that um, you know, this law was already violating and denying Plessy's rights, which indeed was kind of true, because these amendments of the U.S. Constitution were describing equal treatment, which is you know, a really basic idea. You know, treat others the way you want to be treated, everyone should be treated equally and fairly. But this was denied with the Separate Car Act. Ferguson declared that the state had the right to regulate railroads because it was within state boundaries. This guy saying, you know what, all of you are saying, that's, that's just like, well, I don't know what you're saying, it's just random stuff. What I'm saying is that because these railroads are in Louisiana, we can regulate them however they want. You can see how there's some controversy to what he said. So because he boarded a whites-only car and Plessy was charged for it, the Supreme Court said that laws requiring segregation were within the state's powers. Once again, we can see because of America's decentralized governmental system, the states hold so much power. And the Supreme Court is literally saying that, you know what, it's up to the state to decide, which can pose a lot of problems if you think about it. The Supreme Court also concluded by saying that racial prejudice could not be overcome by legislation. So think about how horrible that's going to be in the future. It's basically saying that, you know what, we grant you legal equality, but we, don't, we, don't, we are not ruling over social equality or other, any kind of you know, prejudice. That's not about us. We are only talking about legislation, and they're saying that legislation can't rule over prejudice which is like so ironic to me. And what's significant from all of this information is that it validated segregation. It allowed segregation. And it set a very racist precedent that was based on previous cases as well. So if you think that this was the first time segregation happened, it really wasn't. There were many previous cases that this case was actually based off of. So every case that's a precedent, right, and this case followed precedent from previous cases such as Brown versus the Education Board, where there was segregation within a school. And there were many other cases that I can't think of the top of my head, but definitely this was not the first case regarding segregation. And unfortunately, this won't be the last one as well. But what's bad about this one is that it now sets a precedent saying that segregating and racism is okay. So future cases regarding the same issue is going to be deemed as, you know what, it's okay to happen, which is definitely not true. So that's all about Plessy versus Ferguson. Now let's talk about class conflicts and ethnic clashes. So in 1877, the presidents of na the nation's four largest railroads decided to cut wages by 10%. And so because of this, many workers, they struck back and they stopped working. In other words, we know, that's, we know that today it's called a strike. This showed the weakness of the labor movement, partly caused by the friction between races, especially between Irish and the Chinese. In 1879, Chinese immigrants were severely restricted by a bill passed by Congress. Hayes, however, being a nice guy, he vetoed this bill because of a treaty he had with China. In 1882, Hayes left office and the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed. This barred any Chinese from entering the United States and it was the first law ever to limit immigration. So back then you can already see racism or discrimination toward, toward Asians or toward the Chinese or Asian Americans. 
This is even carried on today, especially with our pandemic today. You can see all this discrimination geared towards Asian Americans and Asian Canadians as well. So all these problems, it's just history repeating itself and we can see the reflections and the ripples that are caused and it stems back to, you know, the 1880s even. Now let's talk about Garfield and Arthur. In 1880, James A. Garfield, who was a Republican, he won against Winfield S. Hancock, which was a Democrat. Garfield's running mate was Chester A. Arthur, who was a stalwart. And a stalwart is someone who opposed civil, ser civil services and the merit system and were actually highly disliked by the public. James A. Garfield died from being shot by an quote-unquote insane office seeker Guiteau. Guito was mad that, you know, James got to run for president, got to be president, and he basically just, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm so mad at you, I'm just going to kill you. And that's what he did. And he protected himself by saying that he was insane when he really wasn't insane. Chester Arthur didn't seem like a good fit for president because he was a stalwart, and stalwarts usually supported corruption. But he actually surprised the public by turning his back on the stalwarts and even called for reform of the Republican Party. Now let's talk about the Pendleton Act of 1883. This act awarded government jobs based on ability, not just because a buddy awarded the job. It also prohibited financial assessments of job holders. So this was definitely much fairer because if you remember from previous episodes, we talked about the spoils system where, you know, people would be award awarded a government job just because, you know, they were friends with one of the politicians. But this also made politics more about money, unfortunately. James G. Blaine became the Republican candidate, and some Republican reformers switched to the Democrat Party and were called mugwumps. Democrats chose Grover Cleveland, and they became the first Democratic president since Buchanan, Whoop whoop, finally, the Democrats finally got one of, their press, one of their candidates to run for president ever since Buchanan. Grover was a laissez-faire kind of president. Basically, he would let businesses do what they needed to, and he was pro-capitalism and pro-business. He tried adhering to the merit system, and if you don't recall from previous episodes, the merit system is the process of hiring government employees based on ability to perform a job and not on their political connections, which is the opposite of the spoils system. Grover was also plagued with military pensions. It, there was a big issue with you know, awarding people money, especially the Civil War veterans. But people used it to their advantage and they fraudulently stole money from Grover because they just gave out money to random people. Now let's talk about a lower tariff. In 1881, the Treasury actually had a surplus of 145 million. <laughs> Damn, it's so rare for the Treasury to ever have a surplus, but they did. Most of it came from a high tariff. A lot of people, because of this surplus, they were like, you know what, look, we already have extra amounts of money. Why can't you lower the tariff? Lower the tariff. But industrialists opposed it. At first, Cleveland wasn't really interested with all this tariff business, but later on, he did take action. Now let's talk about the Billion Dollar Congress. Thomas B. Reed was the Speaker of the House, in other words, the leader of the House of Representatives. 
He opened the Billion Dollar Congress, which was the 51st Congress and also the Congress that legislated many expensive, many expensive projects. It's called the Billion Dollar Congress because of how much money they spent on projects and how much in they invested on projects. The Populist Party also emerged in 1892 and it represented interests of minority groups, such as disgruntled farmers. Their main call was for inflation via the free coinage of silver. However, their ideas are actually very significant. Their ideas became standard in politics and even today, although they didn't win anything, some of their ideas are very, very realistic and we can see them applied in our lives and in our modern day today. Some examples are income tax, which we have today, immigration restrictions, term limits, direct elections of U.S. senators, and shorter workdays. So many of these things we have today. So it's surprising that they w didn't win at that time, but their ideas were carried on into our day today. Cleveland did win, but shortly after he won, there was the Depression of 1893. So I just want to clarify, a panic is a lot shorter than a depression and it's usually caused more by human actions. Depressions, recessions, are usually caused more by the natural economic cycle. So this one, this depression is actually unique because the Treasury experienced a huge deficit caused by the Sherman Silver Act, which required the government to buy, the government to buy metals which severely drained the gold in the Treasury. The Sherman Silver Act was passed a few, few years ago and it basically required the government to get more gold and metals. And this is what actually kind of contributed to the depression. Because the government was required to buy all these metals, it drained all the money in the treasury which resulted in a deficit. So let's just do a quick recap because this actually concludes our episode. In summary, number one, there were, you have to remember that there was corruption during the Gilded Age on the federal and local level. On the federal level, we had the Credit Mobilier scandal and the Whiskey Ring scandal. On the local level, we had Tammany Hall and Boss Tweed. Number two, there was the failure of Reconstruction. Remember, why did this end politically? Once again, due to the Compromise of 1877. Now, what are the consequences of this end? There are the Jim Crow laws and the Plessy versus Ferguson case. Number three, civil service reform, the Pendleton Act. So think about how they're trying to go against the spoil system and trying to end corruption. Number four, hard versus soft money tensions, the, you know, the Sherman Silver Act, the depression, inflation, paper money, greenbacks, all of these ideas. And these four points are what are the most significant points of our discussion today. I hope you were able to learn something new from this episode and I had so much fun sharing about American history. Stay tuned and I'll talk to you guys next time. Thank you.